Hello and welcome to Torquid Migration. I'm Clara Sanderling and Torquid Migration is supported by the University of Manchester. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR, plays a critical role in the protection of refugees. Yet while the UNHCR seeks to pressure states into providing aid and protection to refugees, it is also funded by states. To discuss this tension, I am joined by Jeff Crisp, who is a research associate at the Refugee Studies Centre at the University of Oxford, who has previously held senior positions within the UNHCR. I started by asking Jeff Crisp to give a brief overview of what he calls the UNHCR's expansionist history. Well, I think it's worth pointing out that UNHCR started in a very small way back in 1951. It just had a handful of staff. They were all based in Geneva and the organisation had a budget of just $300,000. Now, my argument would be that since that time of the early 1950s, the organisation has undergone a constant process of expansion. And I would suggest that that expansion has taken three particular forms. Firstly, geographical expansion. Initially, UNHCR was very much focused on refugees in and from Europe. But as time went on, the organisation's activities extended to other parts of the world, in the 1960s, it started to work in post-colonial Africa, in the 1970s in South Asia as a result of the Bangladesh crisis, and in Southeast Asia as a result of the situation in Vietnam. In the 1980s, it began to move into Central America and Southwest Asia as a result of the Afghan emergency. In the 1990s, UNHCR began working in the Balkans because of the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina and also in the former Soviet Union an area where it had never worked before. And then in the last uh, 20 years since 2000, UNHCR has become much more engaged in the Middle East, an area where it was previously not uh, particularly involved because it didn't deal with Palestinian refugees. But as a result of the Iraq crisis, the Syria crisis and the Yemen crisis, UNHCR has become much more involved in recent years in the Middle East. So firstly, geographical expansion. Secondly, functional expansion. As UNHCR's activities moved beyond Europe and the developed countries into lower income parts of the world, the organization's activities shifted from simply focusing on refugee protection and solutions to a whole range of other activities, such as water, sanitation, health, education, employment, livelihoods, agriculture, infrastructure, security, and camp management. So there's been a very rapid growth in the functional range of activities that the organisation is involved in. And thirdly, and perhaps most strikingly, the categories of people that the organisation has involved in has also expanded very substantially. When UNHCR was initially created, it was very much mandated to work with refugees as defined in the 1951 Refugee Convention. But since that time, it's begun to work with a whole range of additional groups, including internally displaced people, returnees, that is former refugees who have gone back to their own country, stateless populations, asylum seekers and irregular migrants, and most recently the victims of natural disasters and climate change. So what we see at the moment with UNHCR, it's very much rebranding itself away from being what it used to call the UN's refugee agency. It's now calling itself the agency for forcibly displaced people. And I would suggest that that um, demonstrates a very significant expansion in the range of categories of people that the organisation is now working with. 
And there seems to always been this tension between the independence of the UNHCR and the fact that it's mandated and funded by states. So um, how independent do you think the UNHCR is relative to states and are there any practical implications to this tension? You're absolutely right to draw attention to that tension. I would argue that UNHCR does have a degree of autonomy, but that autonomy which it enjoys is very limited or relative in scope. And that is primarily due to its relationship with states on one hand, and on the other hand, its membership of the UN system. So if we look at UNHCR, it's very much a state-centric organization. It's not like a giant NGO such as Oxfam or World Vision or CARE, it's very much a state-centric organization. It was established in 1951 uh, at the initiative of states. It has a governing body called the Executive Committee that consists entirely of states, and that committee approves both the organization's policies and its budgets. It's very much funded by states. I think over 90% of the organization's budget comes from voluntary contributions from governments. And those governments are also free to earmark donations to particular operations and particular activities. So even the money that UNHCR receives from states is often specified for certain uh, functions and activities. And then finally, and just as important, I think, uh, looking at the range of UNHCR's field activities, UNHCR can only operate on the ground with the consent of states and often under conditions imposed by them. So UNHCR is very much a state-centric organization. At the same time, we also have to take account of the fact that states don't have the same interests and priorities. And, and the experience of UNHCR shows there's a very significant split, I would argue, between donor states, that is the countries that pay the organization's bills, which are largely the most uh, prosperous states in the world, and then the refugee hosting countries in the global south, where 80 5% of the world's refugees are to be found. So not only is UNHCR having to take very close account of the interests of states, but it all has to take account of the fact that those states are not necessarily consistent. And to make things even more complicated, UNHCR also has to take uh, account of the interests and the uh, priorities of other stakeholders, regional organizations such as the Organization of African Unity, for example, other UN agencies, whether it be UNICEF, IOM, WFP, UNDP, and also, of course, the very wide range of NGOs and civil society organizations that actually implement UNHCR programs on the ground. So what I would summarize the situation as being is that UNHCR has to tread a very delicate balancing act, uh, balancing the interests of states and different states, but also the interests of these different stakeholders. So any action that the organization takes has to be taken after close consideration of how these other stakeholders might respond to the way that UNHCR is um, functioning. Yeah, quite a tricky situation. Um, do you think this um, tension has shifted at all recently? Has it become, um, well, I, I was going to ask if it's become more or less dependent or on states more or less uh, autonomous, I suppose. Um, but perhaps it's not that easy um, because it's not just this simple relation yeah. between between states and, and the UNHCR. I think it's very difficult to measure the level or degree of dependency with any real precision. But in general, my answer to your question would be yes. Uh, in recent years, UNHCR has become increasingly constrained and indeed compromised. Now, why 
has that situation arisen? I would suggest as a result of a number of different factors. Firstly, in recent years, basic refugee protection principles have come under serious threat as a result of state action. States, even if they are signatories to the 1951 Convention, uh, have felt frequent, uh, increasingly free uh, to act with impunity and to disregard the basic principles of refugee protection. And this puts UNHCR as an organisation under considerable pressure. Uh, in recent years, there's been a growing gap between uh, humanitarian needs and humanitarian resources, and this has made fundraising a key priority. And when an organisation such as UNHCR has to raise funds from states, it may be less willing to criticise or comment on their refugee policies uh, and asylum policies. A third um, variable that I would think is very important is that UNHCR has just suffered four years of quite strong hostility towards refugees and the UN system from the Trump administration in the United States. And again, the United States has been for many years UNHCR's primary donor, uh, contributing around 40% of the organization's total budget. And when you're working with a major donor, which is basically hostile to your activities and your purposes, then that puts an organization in a very compromised situation. And then finally, I would suggest that because of the hostility experienced from the Trump administration, UNHCR has become increasingly around on the European Union for its funding. But of course, the European Union has also got its own very specific agenda on refugee asylum and migration issues, particularly in the Mediterranean. And that agenda is not necessarily one that is conducive to the practices and policies of UNHCR. So I would argue, yes, UNHCR for in recent years has been working in an increasingly difficult environment, has become increasingly constrained and compromised. I think looking forward uh, to the future, the big question that we are confronted with now is what difference a Biden administration in Washington DC will make. Will the change of government in the United States um, lead to a lessening of the pressures on UNHCR and give it more room for maneuver than it's had in the recent past? Mm. In terms of one of the things that you mentioned, the um, freedom or the ability of UNHCR to criticise some states for um, uh, the way they... Um, uh, the way they uh, receive refugees or their refugee policies. Do you think that's something that's changed? Like, have they been more outspoken in the past, uh, for example? Again, that's something that's difficult to measure with any precision. Um, but I would say, in general, that has been my experience and uh, my evaluation of the situation. Um, UNHCR has always been cautious about criticising states in a very overt way. Um, but I think it has become... Uh, increasingly constrained in that respect in recent years. And to give one principal example, UNHCR and indeed IOM and other members of the UN system have been very reluctant to say anything about the EU's role in sending uh, refugees back to Libya. As you probably know, the EU is funding the Libyan Coast Guard, which intercepts people at sea, takes them back to Libya, where they're put into very abusive detention centres. And while UNHCR and other UN agencies have called on the EU to change its approach to this situation, it's never directly uh, condemned or criticised the EU for its engagement in this way, or pointed out that this is really contrary to refugee protection and humanitarian principles.
Uh, one of the things that UNHCR has played a central role in recently has been establishing the Global Compact for Refugees. Um, and uh, uh, what outcomes do you think that we can expect from, from this initiative? Okay, just a little bit of background. The Global Compact on Refugees is a document essentially drawn up by UNHCR in consultation with states and other stakeholders, very much prompted by the European Refugee Emergency of 2015-2016 and it's a document which sets out broad principles and strategies relating to refugee protection assistance and solutions. Now in some ways one could argue that um, the global compact on refugees is quite a remarkable achievement. It's been very broadly endorsed by states, by the international community as a whole and this was no mean achievement at a time when the refugee issues was becoming an increasingly contentious one and states were generally pursuing policies which were inimical to the, to the basic principles of refugee protection. Since the Global Compact was formulated, um, UNHCR has also been very successful in getting states and other actors to make specific pledges relating to the implementation of the Compact. That's on the positive side. At the same time, I would have to argue that the Global Compact on Refugees uh, suffers from a number of different weaknesses and limitations. Firstly, it's not a binding document, so states can choose whether or not to respect its contents. Secondly, it doesn't commit anyone, including states, to specific or measurable targets. Thirdly, I would argue that it's generally stronger on the developmental and assistant aspects of refugee situations than it is on the basic principles of refugee protection. And perhaps most significantly of all, um, while UNHCR is claiming now to be the UN agency for forcibly displaced people, the Global Compact on Refugees only actually covers 25 million of the 80 million forcibly displaced people in the world. And that is because the Global Compact on Refugees quite rigorously excludes the, the situation of internally displaced people, despite the fact that there are twice as many IDPs as there are refugees, um, more than 40 million uh, IDPs, in fact, a much larger number than the number of refugees. So there are some of the inherent weaknesses of the Global Compact on Refugees. And then to bring the story up to date, when the Global Compact on Refugees was formulated and completed and endorsed in 2018, nobody had any idea that the COVID-19 pandemic would be um, rearing its ugly head very soon. And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has put more pressure on refugee protection norms. It's given uh, states a good excuse to close their borders to refugees and asylum seekers. And at the same time, the COVID-19 pandemic has increased the gap between humanitarian needs and humanitarian resources. And again, I think some of the momentum that was achieved by the Global Compact on Refugees has really been dissipated as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. I was wondering in relation to that, um, so uh, some of that, the, the criticism um, that you mentioned there, for example, that um, the uh, compact is not binding, that it's just based on uh, pledges or that it's voluntary. Um, I've, uh, I know some people have criticised the UNHCR in particular because they feel like UNHCR should have put forward uh, I guess a more bold agenda 
Um, I don't know if you think, if you agree with that, if you think that the UNHCR as such could have done something differently or if essentially they were too constrained to, 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 to do that. I think on the question of whether the Global Compact should have been a binding document or not, there was very little choice as far as the organisation is concerned. If the organisation had set out to produce a document that was binding on states, then it's uh, very likely that the negotiation process would not have proceeded very far. I think there was a very realistic understanding from the beginning that a non-binding document uh, would have a greater chance of being endorsed by the uh, majority of states in the UN system, uh, whereas uh, a binding document, many governments would have turned their back on the whole initiative. And of course, the whole idea of non-binding documents is not an entirely new one. Uh, in relation to internally displaced people, for example, we have the guiding principles on internal displacement, which are meant to guide and um, uh, advise governments on their actions in relation to IDPs, but the guiding principles are not a binding document. So to go in the direction of a non-binding rather than binding document was not entirely new and was also, I think, a, a realistic and pragmatic response to a very difficult international environment. Okay. Um... So I thought we'd just move on to a slightly different topic. Um, you've been very critical um, on Twitter, for example, uh, of the way in which UNHCR uses marketing and branding. Uh, so I wonder if you could explain a bit what it is that you find problematic. Sure. Now, two preliminary points. Firstly, I continue to believe that UNHCR does great, sometimes fantastic operational work in the field. It's really the public relations, the social media dimension of the organization's work that I've been critical of on Twitter and in other places in recent years. Secondly, my critique of UNHCR is not confined to that specific organization. It's more a critique of the humanitarian sector as a whole. And I think what we've seen in recent years is the whole of the humanitarian sector moving in the direction of branding, marketing, celebrity endorsement and so-called storytelling rather than forthright advocacy. Um, now, my main criticisms uh, of this approach will be uh, the following. Firstly, I think UNHCR's public relations and social media strategy at the moment really puts UNHCR at the centre of things rather than refugees themselves. And I think it actually tends to exaggerate the role that the organisation plays in the lives of refugees. If you go to a refugee situation, often you'll see refugees individually as families and as communities doing a great deal to help themselves, whereas too much of the public relations we see tend to suggest that they're completely dependent on UNHCR and other international organisations. I think the whole focus on branding an organisation like UNHCR is fundamentally inconsistent with the principle of localization, which was endorsed at the World Humanitarian Summit several years ago and which is supposed to shift the balance of power and resources away from large international organizations and towards national and local actors. The constant stress on what the UN is doing, what the big international NGOs are doing, I think is fundamentally contradictory to that principle of localization. I find unfortunately that some of the public relations and social media output of UNHCR and other humanitarian agencies tends to portray refugees in a rather dependent and sometimes undignified light. And I'd like to see a more critical approach taken towards uh, their public relations activities in that respect. And then finally, um, my final point on this will be that uh, 
the approach of UNHCR and other humanitarian agencies to their public relations, their branding, their marketing activities, as far as I can see, has been entirely unself-critical. So it's now become very common practice for humanitarian agencies to undertake quite rigorous and independent evaluations of all of their operational activities and to make recommendations and to try and improve their activities on that basis. But it seems that public relations and social media activities are never really subject to effective scrutiny. Um, are we getting value for money out of those activities? Are they portraying refugees in the right way? Are they setting the right kind of image uh, for the humanitarian sector? I'd like to see the humanitarian sector become much more self-critical about the way it markets and brands itself in the future. That's really interesting. I was just wondering in relation to the previous discussion of UNHCR's um, dependence on states, whether that might be one of the driving forces. So um, you mentioned that uh, in a lot of the branding, the UNHCR is putting itself first rather than refugees or in focus. Could that be because they're marketing themselves actually towards states? Do you see what I mean? So trying to, um, so the uh, imagined audience might be states or policymakers, and and then uh, it, it might be a, a strategy to sort of inflate the importance of the organisation itself. Well, certainly, and another of my criticisms of the kind of public relations side of things has been the misleading use of statistics and individual stories. And certainly, my impression is that UNHCR. Um, likes to use as large as figures as possible. So this figure that it's using at the moment of 80 or 85 million forcibly displaced people, when in fact um, only 25 million of that number are actually directly under the mandate of UNHCR, serves to emphasize and perhaps exaggerate the importance of the international of, of the organization. So I would certainly concur with your analysis there. To read more about Jeff Crisp's work, follow the links in the episode description. That was all for this time. Thanks so much for listening.